The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Just as you come back in, one warning I like to give people is as you go through the bacon potluck, don't, don't take like all of one item, okay? Make sure you spread it out so other people can enjoy it, so they can get votes and things of that sort. I had one bad experience where someone stole all the bacon jalapeno poppers. You know who you are. <laughs> and uh, they said, they were amazing. Did you have any? I'm like, nope, they were gone when I got there. So... Still a little bitter. Still a little bitter. Working on that. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we, uh, I know my heart gets so distracted by everything that's going on, preparing for the potluck, the rain, the thunder, just the craziness of Christmas. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, By your grace, you would focus our hearts upon your word this morning. And Lord, pray that you would tune our hearts this Christmas to focus on Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is 12 days till Christmas, but it is 330 days to another big date. Anybody know what it is? The presidential election. That's right. It's 330 days away. That means you have 330 days of political calls. 330 days of political ads. 330 days of political discussions. Aren't you so excited? You know, it's amazing when you think that the election is almost a year away. It is, to me at least, it's absolutely surprising. Because I look at all of the debates that's happened all the campaigns that has happened. And from my perspective, it seems like the election should be next week. But it is 330 days away. Senator Ted Cruz actually announced his candidacy 596 days before the election. 384 days before the election, Joe Biden said it was too late to enter the contest. A year before the election. You know, I kind of like how Canada does it. You know how long their election lasts? Their campaigns? 11 weeks. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be dreamy? It amazes me at the amount of time that is poured in to these presidential campaigns. It also amazes me the amount of money. In 2012, the election cost record amount of money at $2.6 billion. This election is estimated to reach $5 billion dollars. And that's not just, you know, play money. That's real money. Five billion dollars. To put that in perspective for you, when the World Trade Center was rebuilt, it was the most expensive skyscraper ever built, and it cost $3.9 billion. And so we could rebuild that with the money that goes into the political campaigns for president. 
You know, as I look at these things and I see how passionate and how much energy we put into these presidential campaigns, I wonder why is it that we get so worked up about this? Why is it that it divides families and neighbors and maybe even churches? Why is it that we put so much time and money and effort into these presidential campaigns? Why are we so passionate? And I think the reason is because all of us long for a king. All of us long for a king that will protect us from the dangers of this world. All of us long for a king that will care for the poor in a just and compassionate way. All of us long for a king that will seek out our best interests. All of us want a king that will fix all the broken things of our life. This longing for a king is a longing given to us by God. And although politics are very, very important and we must treat them with great diligence and seriousness, our longing for a king will never be satisfied by any politician. Amen? In fact, our longing for a king will only be satisfied by God. And that's what we're reminded today in Micah chapter 5. If you would, please open up to Micah chapter 5. It's page 778 in the Red Bible. It's page, page 984 in the Children's Bible. Micah was a prophet uh, to Judah, and he prophesied about 700 years seven centuries before the birth of Jesus. In the book of Micah, God speaks through the prophet Micah to bring a lawsuit against the leaders, the corrupt leaders of Judah. Because for centuries, the leaders of Judah have led their people into wickedness and into idolatry. But as God speaks through this prophet Micah, he not only proclaims this lawsuit, but he also proclaims a great hope of a restored Israel by a new king. And so let's read together Micah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Micah 5, 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephraim, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are a needy people. We are a broken people that live in a broken world. And we need great hope. Lord, may our hope reside not in man, but with you. Lord, may our hearts hope in the joy and the story and in the good news of Christmas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we look forward to Christmas every year for many reasons. Sometimes it is 
the Christmas songs or the Christmas cookies or the Christmas lights. Maybe it's the Christmas bacon, whatever it might be. We look forward to Christmas. And just as we look forward to Christmas, ultimately our hope and our joy is in that on Christmas we celebrate that Christ was born. And as we look back to the birth of Christ with great joy, we recognize that in the Old Testament, the people of God looked forward to the birth of Christ with great hope and with great expectation that their king was coming to rescue them. In Micah chapter 5, this is the hope that he is reminding them of, that God has not forgotten them, that ultimately God's punishment and God's chastisement of the rebellion is not the end of the story but that God is going to bring forth a king that will restore all the broken things of this world and make all things new. From Micah chapter 5, I want to look three things about this coming king. First is the need for a new king. The second is the promise of a new king. And third is the reign of a new king. And so first, let's look at the need for a new king. Let me start with a little bit of a history lesson for you. If you remember way back when we studied Exodus, the people of God developed into a great nation when they were in Egypt. They multiplied and they multiplied and they multiplied into this great nation, Israel. And so God brought them out of Egypt through the ten plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea. He brought them through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land of Canaan. When they established themselves in the promised land of Canaan, God was called God was to be their king, and he called men to be judges over the people with God himself as their king. After time had passed, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the people wanted a human king. And so they came to the prophet Samuel, and they said, we want a king just like all the other nations. And Samuel warned them, and he rebuked them, God is your king. You do not need a human king. You have a heavenly king. But they said, we don't care. We want an earthly king. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and he prays and he talks to the Lord about this. And the Lord says, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as their king. Go and warn them if they have an earthly king, a human king of what will happen to them. And so Samuel goes back to the people and he says, listen, if we have a human king, he's going to take your sons and he's going to put them into his military. If we have a human king, he's going to take your daughters and put them in the service of the palace. If we have a human king, he's going to take parts of your fields and take them for himself. And the people said, we don't care. We want a human king. And so God comes to Samuel and says, give them what they want. You know, one of the most dangerous things God can do is give us what we want. And so he gives them a human king. And he looks like the other kings. He's tall. He's handsome. His name's Saul. Saul wasn't a very good king. He forsook the Lord. He was a coward, amongst other things. When Saul died after 40 years of reign, King David rose. King David was a man after God's own heart. But he too had many serious failures in his kingship. After David was was Solomon, his son, who was extremely wise, but turned to idolatry. Because of his idolatry, the kingdom was split in two. I think I actually have a map up here. Maybe it would help us. There's a map. The The kingdom was split in two. And so the northern kingdom was called Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. The kings in the northern kingdom were wicked and evil all the time. They're always bad. We actually had this question in ordination, name all the good kings of the Northern Kingdom. It's a trick question. There are none. They're all bad. 
They're all evil. They're all wicked. There's like one little sunshine of hope, but for the most part, they're all bad. And so over hundreds of years, God, through his prophets, calls the northern kingdom to repent and return to him. But they continue to worship idols. And so God brings his judgment to the Assyrian army. And in 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, falls. And then there's the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah also has a lot of kings. And some of the kings are good. Some of the kings are bad. But all of the kings are finite. All of them die. Some of them lead them into wickedness. Some of them lead them towards repentance and revival. But none of them are sustained. And there's this slow deterioration away from God. If you could flip to that next chart, Cassie, on the kings. This is kind of the kings. I had her put in an angle to show that it's a slow deterioration. But, but Micah is, is prophesying during the reign of Hezekiah. And during Hezekiah, there's this revival because of the letter that we're reading today. And, has, and, and Micah writes to the kings of Israel. And he writes this indictment against them, warning them of their wickedness and calling them to repentance. When we look earlier in Micah chapter 3, he, he addresses the corrupt political leader saying, Who did not know that they did not know justice? They hated good and loved evil. They chopped up God's people like meat in a pot. And then he goes on to indict the, politi- the religious leaders, those who misused their prophetic offices for gain. And then in Micah three eleven, he summarizes it by saying, Israel's heads give judgment for a bride. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Therefore, because of you, because of the political leaders, because of the religious leaders of Israel, Zion, the people of God, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The leaders of God were to lead the people in the worship of God and to the blessing of God. But the leaders were human. They were sinful. And they led the people of God away from the one true God and brought on them judgment and destruction. As I mentioned, God's judgment came to the northern uh, tribe of Israel, the northern territory in 722. Eventually it came to the southern territory in the form of Babylon in 586 after hundreds of years of warning and calling his people to return to him he plows them like a field now when this prophecy is written in Micah chapter 5 there are 180,000 Assyrian troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem they are knocking on the door they are greatly outnumbered and their their basic options are give up and live and be dispersed throughout the empire or fight and die. But God calls them to something else. He calls them to believe and to stand against him. And so here in verse one, this is what it says. Now, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Assyria had already wiped out much of the southern kingdom of Judah and they've come to Jerusalem And they're surrounded. And miraculously, King Hezekiah leads them in great faith. And they stand up to the Syrian army and they are turned away by the might of God and walk home. But as you saw earlier, kings came after Hezekiah. And they led people away from the Lord. And so eventually the Lord brought his judgment upon them through the Babylonian Empire. Now that is 
a lot of history. (laughs) But the point is this. Israel wanted a human king. They wanted a king to put their hopes in, to put their dreams in, to put their confidence in. And just as God warned, that king failed them time and time and time again. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations, but God was to be their king. You know, it isn't hard for us to relate to the Israelites. You know, we have great aspirations for our leaders, whether they be political, religious, in the workplace. You know, it always amazes me how we romanticize past leaders, you know, like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, who probably had the worst approval rating of all time. We, we romanticize them and we think, oh, what great leaders. But, but in the midst of it, we see the flaws of our leaders. All leaders have this fundamental problem that we're sinners, that we're selfish, that we're nearsighted, that we can't see all things like God can, and that one day we will die. Bernard Baruch who was a presidential advisor, said it this way. He goes, vote for the man who promises least because he'll be the least disappointed. You know, we can become so cynical, can't we? When we put our hope in the wrong place. We can be so disappointed when we put our hope in the wrong place. Our hope for a king is a good hope. We just have to make sure we place it with the right person. And so this Christmas season, this election season is a great time to ask yourself the question, who am I putting my hope in? Where does my hope lie? Does my hope lie with the next president of the United States? Does my hope lie with the future of my children? Does my hope lie with my career success, my marital success? Or does my hope lie with the one true king? And so we see here this promise of a king, that there's this great need that we have for a king to fix the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our life. So in remedy, in grace, God comes to us in our need and he promises a new king. Verse two, he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins, whose whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In verse 2, God promises Israel a new king, a new ruler that has both an earthly origin and an eternal origin. First, looking at the earthly origin, we see that this promised king will come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a very interesting choice for the king to come from for many reasons. One reason is because it was the hometown of David. And as we hear that the king is to come from Bethlehem, it's a reminder of the promise that God gave to David. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so as God says, through the prophet Micah, that this king will come through Bethlehem. He is reminding the people of God that the king that was promised to David is the king that is promised to them. Bethlehem is also a very interesting choice because of its size. It was a very small city. It, was, it wasn't even counted amongst 
the population of the cities in the book of Nehemiah was grouped in with neighboring cities. And this, the specificity of this prophecy is to give credibility to the one that is to come. You know, it didn't just say that the Messiah will come in the Western Hemisphere, will come in Israel, but it, came a, it gave a very specific small city. This is where the Messiah will be born. He will be born in this small little town of Bethlehem. You know, we could imagine them saying, a Savior will be born in Milwaukee or Madison. But Casco? I mean, they share a high school. They're a small little town. God gives us this very particular prophecy that we might know which one that claims to be the Savior really is. You see, many came and said, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And they would ask the question, where were you born? Jerusalem? No good. You had to be born in Bethlehem. You know, there are many people who will say, I can't be a Christian because I'm a logical person. I need the facts. I need the details. I need the proof. But what's so amazing about Christ is that over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that were written, all of them were written at least 400 years before he was born. Over 300 of them were fulfilled in Christ from being born in Bethlehem to being a man out of Nazareth to coming out of Egypt It was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that he'd be betrayed by a friend, that his clothing would be auctioned off. There was over 300 prophecies of the Christ. One of them was that he'd be born in Bethlehem, which he could not control. And in Jesus, all 300 came true. It takes more faith to not believe Jesus is the Christ than to believe Jesus is the Christ. You know, it is actually quite amazing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you know the story, his mom and dad, they lived in Nazareth in Galilee. It was about 80 miles away. But Caesar Augustus on this whim said, hey, I'm going to take a census. Go to your hometown. And so this full-term mom hikes 80 miles. I don't know any mom that would want to do that. Hikes 80 miles to go to her hometown because her and her fiance are both from the lineage of David. And so they go to Bethlehem. And while this was the whim of Caesar, it was the plan of God that the Savior could be born in the city of David. And so we see all the promises of God come true in Christ. All the prophecies are fulfilled in this little town of Bethlehem. The third reason, much shorter, why Bethlehem was a very interesting choice of God was because Bethlehem had just been conquered by the Assyrian army. Assyria now had control of Bethlehem. And yet in all this brokenness and in all this pain, God is saying, from that town, I will bring to you the promised king. And so the earthly origins of this promised king is from that little town of Bethlehem. But there are also eternal origins of this king. It says in verse 2 again, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This term ancient of days is used in the Bible to describe the everlasting existence of God. In Psalm 92, it's used to say, before the mountains were brought forth, or before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so this king that is to come is both earthly, but also eternal. He is both man and God. 
And this is so extremely important that he has both identities. He needs the earthly origin. He needs to be a man because he needed to be our representative before a holy God. But he also needed to be eternal. He needed to be God in order that he could have his kingship forever. King Arthur was a great leader and a great king. And when he died, his tombstone read, Here lies Arthur, king once and king to be. In 1958, there was a book that was titled after this marker. And it said, The Once and Future King, talking about King Arthur. Here's the problem. When King Arthur died, he stayed dead. (laughs) But when King Jesus died, he rose from the dead. And he ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns today. And we wait with eager expectation for him to return and to finish the work that he has begun. Micah continues in verse 3, he says, Therefore he, talking about the Lord, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This verse is prophesying what must happen before the new king will come, before the Christ will come. He's prophesying that, that Judah will be wiped out, that they'll be dispersed, that they'll be brought back, which they did through the Persian kingdom, reestablish Jerusalem. And once that happens, God then will bring the king. And so while verse 2 prophesies of the coming king, verse 3 tells us of what must happen before that king comes. And so Israel waits and waits and waits for the coming king. You can imagine their anticipation. I mean, today, this morning, maybe yesterday, you had the smell of bacon. Maybe you can smell it now and you anticipate it will be so good to eat this meal. But they waited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through the Assyrian Empire, through the Babylonian Empire, through the Persian Empire, through the Greek Empire, and into the Roman Empire. They waited for that shepherd king that would come and restore the people of God. And finally, it came in the form of a baby on Christmas Day. Without much fanfare, without a royal welcome, a king was born who will reign forever. And so the reign of the new king, what kind of reign would this be? What kind of king would he be? Would he be a political messiah? Would he be a military warrior? Verse 4 tells us what this king will be like. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The promised king was to be a shepherd king, a shepherd who was not sitting down on the job, but a shepherd who was up, standing, active, feeding, nourishing, and guarding his flock. He was not a hired hand that would run away at the first sign of trouble, but he would be the king that would shepherd his sheep, who would love his sheep, care for his sheep, in the strength of God and for the glory of God. In John chapter 10, Jesus makes this audacious claim. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. The good shepherd comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse four continues. It says, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. This king of Israel was not just a tribal deity. He would be king over all the world, over all the universe, over all of creation. He would be king over America, king over China, king over Iraq. He's king over all kings. Jesus is the king above all kings. Just as Israel in the day of Micah waited for the coming of the king, we too wait for the second coming of the king. Christ came on Christmas morning, but we wait for his return. Well, he will bring his kingdom in full. For at his, knee, every, at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, he will correct all corruption, all injustice, all suffering, and all pain. On Christmas, we not only celebrate the first coming of the king, but we look forward to the second coming of the king where he will make all things new again. The book of Revelations look forward to this second coming and gives us a picture of what this new kingdom will look like. It talks about Christ and says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then it goes on to describe the kingdom of this great king. It says, John says, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now imagine this next part as a political platform, okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Can you imagine a politician making those promises? Elect me, there'll be no more pain. Elect me, no more tears. Elect me and I will take away death. And yet this is exactly what this king has promised to those who trust in him. It goes on, verse 5, we'll end with this part. It says, and he shall be their peace. This is such a fascinating statement because it doesn't say that this coming king will bring them peace or will tell them how to make peace, but it says that he shall be their peace. What does it mean that this coming king, this shepherd king, Jesus Christ, will be their peace? their peace. Well, there's a story that I think helps us understand. It's a story of two missionaries, Don and Carol Richardson. In 1962, they moved to West Papua, Indonesia. And as the Richardsons start to explain who Jesus was and what he has come to do, the people rejected the story. The Sawi rejected it. And they actually interpreted Jesus' betrayer, Judas, as the hero of the story because it turned out that they idealized treachery. 
Sometimes they would even befriend members of another village just to betray them, kill them, and have a cannibalistic feast. And so they loved treachery. They loved evil. They loved wickedness. Well, one time a battle broke out between the various villages. And the Richardsons, who had become friends of many of them, said, if you guys don't stop fighting, we're going to have to leave. And taking the threat seriously, a man from the Sawi tribe took his baby boy and brought him to his enemy, to a man from another tribe, and gave him his own child. The Richardsons were told that in the Sawi community, when one village wants to make peace with another village, the way they do it is by giving one of their own children. And this child is called the peace child. And it is through this peace child that there is this promise that this one village will never attack the other village as long as this peace child is alive. The Richardson finally really realized that this peace child is the picture of the gospel that they had been looking for. Steve said there was a breakthrough among the Sawi. They started recognizing that Jesus was God's peace child, the ultimate peace child. King Jesus does not just bring us peace. He is our peace. Romans 5, 4 and 5 says this, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, mean being declared right before God, making us right with God. Therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just our prince of peace. Jesus was the price of peace. He paid for our sin in full that we might be at peace with God. He is the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep to be the peace offering, to pay the penalty for our souls. You know, this book of Micah is such a fascinating book. And one of the interesting things is the name Micah. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the name Micah literally means who is like Yahweh. And the end of Micah ends by saying this, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions from the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, O Lord, will cast all our sin into the depth of the sea. You see, this book of Micah was a book of indictment against the sin of Israel, but it was also a book of hope, reminding us that our great king will come and deal with all of our sin upon the cross. You know, we have talked about our longing for a king, our need for a king, the promise of a king, God's provision of a king. But the question is this, who is your king? Is your king a political official? Is your king your husband or your wife or your children? Is your king maybe yourself? All of those kings will fail you. You know, my hope this Christmas, if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your king, is that this Christmas you would get the greatest gift of all, that Christ would become your king. If you're here today and you do trust in Christ for your salvation, my hope is that Christ's kingdom would extend through you, into your neighborhood, into your family, and through the outstretches of your heart. Christ is the King of kings 
and Lord of Lords. And at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of the King our hearts long for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for not leaving us to the destruction of our own sin, but that you have sent King Jesus to righteously rule us, love us, and even die for us. God, we pray that as we enter into this Christmas season, again, that you would focus our hearts upon Christ, who makes Christmas glorious. Lord, please work with our stubborn hearts. Mold our distracted hearts. Teach us to love him more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.